You're listening to Detroit Today on 101.9 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. In the coming week, the investigative journalism program Reveal from the Center for Investigative Reporting and PRX will debut a deep look at redlining in modern America. Redlining is the practical and social infrastructure that pushes people of color into very specific neighborhoods and living conditions. In a few minutes, we're going to talk to a Reveal reporter about their findings with present-day redlining across the nation. But first, we wanted to talk about the history of housing segregation right here in Detroit. In Detroit, we have a literal wall that was constructed in the 1940s to help us understand just how stark the boundaries were between neighborhoods of color and white neighborhoods, but the policies and practices extended far beyond that single wall. Here to help us understand that history a little better is Kevin Boyle. He's a professor of American history at Northwestern University and author of Arc of Justice, a saga of race, civil rights, and murder in the jazz age, which takes place in Detroit, which is also Kevin's hometown. Kevin Boyle, welcome to Detroit Today. Thanks very much for having me. Sure. So I started there with the the wall that uh, that that wall at Eight Mile Road uh, that that so symbolizes uh, the strife uh, I think that that existed historically in this community over black versus white and where people live. Uh, but as I said, it's not the only it's not the only example of this. And the truth is, this city has been shaped by housing policies that were discriminatory and. It's not just the city. It's the city and the suburbs. Yeah, absolutely. The, one of the most important and powerful and tragic forces in Detroit's history is the hyper-segregation of the entire metropolitan area, as you said. And it now stretches back almost a century. Talk about some of the, the things that people can see uh, here in Detroit today that would remind us of uh, those 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 dynamics and and the the way that that de jure segregation helped shape Detroit. Yeah, one of the most remarkable things about housing segregation really is that it's so blatant, and many many white people um, really just don't see it at all. I mean, Detroit is less, the Detroit metropolitan area is less segregated than it used to be. It's made progress in integrating its neighborhoods in the metropolitan area, but it's still hyper-segregated. There is an official measurement of segregation um, that the U.S. Census Bureau does every 10 years, and what they do is they essentially look at the entire metropolitan area and they figure out what percentage of the African-American population would have to move in order to make the entire metropolitan area completely integrated. And Detroit, on that ranking, um, used to be the number one or two most segregated city in America. Yeah. Now yeah. it's dropped to, I don't know, off the top of my head, but in the last measurement, I think somewhere around fourth or fifth. Um, and it, the, that percentage that would have to move is still in the upper 70s. Um, so it's still a hyper-segregated city, and it's not as if it's something that you don't, you can't see. It's something that people choose not to see. Yeah. Um, the, the, the undoing of this de jure segregation and redlining, uh, this was not something that happened very easily either. Uh, but, but talk about the process of trying to impose a, a, a regime of fairness on the idea of 
where people can live and where they can't uh, here in, in Detroit. So segregation in the form that it kind of still exists in this kind of hyper-segregation was created in the United States in the 19-teens and 20s and in Detroit at exactly that same time. And then the federal government in the 1930s laid its power on top of that system, which is literally the redlining system. Mm -hmm. And that existed then in the United States, not just in Detroit, in every major American city. I'm in Chicago. It's not like Chicago is a bastion of racial justice in its neighborhoods. Um, That system remained in place as a legal system um, at the federal level until 1968, until the Fair Housing Act was passed. And on the local level, various cities, including Detroit, tried to pass fair housing laws in the 1950s and early 60s. Detroit tried to pass its first real fair housing law in 1963. And when that happened, there were these massive backlashes against the idea of breaking down the whole systems of segregation. Redlining is just one piece of it or a name that you could put on the entire system. Um, And those efforts again and again in city after city, state after state, were met by this huge backlash of um, whites saying, no, we don't want to break down this system because what the system did, it still does, is it connects race and property values. And it's that connection, it's that fusing the two of them together that makes it so incredibly powerful and makes so many people defend it. Um, That's the power of it. Uh, This is Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson. My guest is Kevin Boyle, professor of American history at Northwestern University, author of Arc of Justice, a saga of race, civil rights, and murder in the jazz age, a book that takes place here in Detroit. Uh, This is also Kevin Boyle's hometown. We're talking about the history of housing segregation here in the city of Detroit, redlining and other practices that divided us along black and white lines in terms of where we live. Historically, something that happened because of local policy as well as federal policy. Uh, A little later, we are going to talk with a reporter uh, who works with an organization that has a new report that looks at the way these things shape our lives today in Metro Detroit. Uh, If you want to join the conversation, uh, give us a call. Tell us Uh, Do you or your family members struggle to buy housing here in Detroit because of who they were or what they looked like? Do you remember these kinds of practices taking place? Do you remember uh, being told that, no, you can't live in this community? Uh, 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page, put comments there, or go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today. And we'll work you into the conversation. Uh, Tell us if in modern times you experience things that remind you of the kind of segregation we used to have here in uh, Detroit and, of course, nationally as well. Um, uh, Kevin, I want to I want to ask you about putting Detroit again in in a national context um, in terms of uh, in terms of the pushback. For, for these things, uh, this this report that that uh, is being released this week really suggests that we're not doing really well on 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 a lot of those counts. Uh, what are some of the things that we need to do now that will make this better? Well, the first most fundamental thing we could do is actually enforce the law. 
Right. We have laws on the books, and as I mentioned a minute ago, we've got we've had them for half a century that outlaw prohibit practices that still go on. So there is still steering by real estate agents. There's overwhelming proof of that. Not every real estate agent, obviously, but there are real estate agents who will steer African American um, families away from predominantly white neighborhoods and not show them properties in white areas. Um, There's still discrimination that takes place in the mortgage market. And it's those forces that reinforce the system of segregation as we live it. Um, You know, it's a really encouraging thought that a lot of Americans like to have that segregation was what happened in the South with separate drinking fountains. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And what that does for an awful lot of white Americans is it gives us the thought that segregation is a thing of the past. But, you know, drive around the neighborhoods and you see segregation staring you in the face. We live in a segregated society. So one thing you could do is enforce the laws. The other thing is you could try to develop more creative social public policies that try to separate out that tangle of race and property values. Yes. Um, And there are communities that have done that for years and years and years. The the classic example is Shaker Heights in a suburb of Cleveland Mm -hmm. that try to think of creative policies that will convince white people that when an African-American moves into your neighborhood or two or three African-Americans move into your neighborhood, um, that that doesn't mean that your property values are going to collapse. And if you could untangle that knot, I think you would go very far in breaking down the systemic segregation of cities and metropolitan areas. Okay, Kevin Boyle, professor of American history at Northwestern University, author of Arc of Justice, Saga of Race, Civil Rights, and Murder in the Jazz Age. Thanks for being here on Detroit Today. Thanks very much for having me, Stephen. I appreciate it. When we come back, we're going to continue our conversation about segregation, redlining in Detroit. We're going to hear from a reporter who's going to tell us what that looks like today. But we also want to hear from you, Hooper from Detroit, Dennis from Wald Lake, Harry and Sterling Heights. We will get to you and your stories as well when we come back on Detroit Today. You're listening to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. The investigative reporting team with Reveal is about to release its year-long investigation into redlining. It looks at how this plays out in dozens of metro areas across the country, including right here in Detroit. You can hear uh, Reveal's investigation air on WDET next Tuesday at 2 p.m. and Wednesday at 10 p.m. Joining us now to talk about what the findings were in that report is Aaron Glantz. He's a senior reporter with Reveal and the Center for Investigative Report and Airing. Aaron, uh, welcome to Detroit Today. Good to be with you. Yeah. Uh, so let's start with the the most significant findings nationwide about redlining. As uh, our last guest was talking about, This is these are things that were outlawed many years ago, but they still take place and they still shape many communities. Uh, what did you what did you see in the in the investigation here? 
Yeah, I mean, your last guest was talking about how in the 1930s the government drew red lines, drew lines on maps and told banks not to lend in black neighborhoods mm -hmm. and, and how that shaped some of the reality we live in today. What we found in our investigation is that in, you know, in the new millennium, in the, the 21st century, um, people of color are still turned away by banks and mortgage lenders even when they make the same amount of money as whites, even when they make um, trying to take on the same amount of debt, even when they're trying to buy in the same neighborhood, they're still more likely to be denied a conventional home mortgage in 61 metros across the country. And Detroit is one of them. Yeah. Detroit is one of those cities where our analysis showed that African-Americans are more likely to be turned away when they try to buy a home even when they make the same amount of money as their white counterparts. Yeah. And and why does that why does that happen given that that is now absolutely against the law? Well, first of all, this law is not enforced very often. You know, President Lyndon Johnson signed the Fair Housing Act in 1968 uh, right after the assassination of Dr. Martin Luther King, mm -hmm. uh, the country was in flames. Uh, he had been trying to get this law passed uh, for years, and he used the national crisis of Dr. King's assassination to finally push it through. But here we are in 2018, um, you know, the final years of the Obama administration, very few banks were sued under the Fair Housing Act. And in the first year of President Trump, not a single bank was sued under the Fair Housing Act. Mm -hmm. um, there's another law called the Community Reinvestment Act, which is designed to force banks to lend in low-income communities and to low-income people. Um, it's a race-neutral law, but it was uh, passed to deal with the legacy of redlining. And the federal banking regulators, uh, since the crash, have passed about 99% of banks in their community lending reviews giving them ratings of satisfactory or outstanding. So what we found is that on the one hand, uh, in places like Detroit, people of color are way more likely to be turned away uh, for a mortgage, even when they make the same amount of money as whites, even when they're trying to take on the same amount of debt as whites, and even when they're trying to buy in the same neighborhood as whites. And yet, on the other hand, the, fa the federal banking regulators are saying that 99% of banks are doing a satisfactory or outstanding job. So um, it doesn't seem like there's a lot of focus on solving this problem. Yeah. Again, 313-577-1019 is the number to join the conversation. Talk to us about your experience with redlining and other practices that seek to divide our community by race in terms of housing. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page, put your comments there, or go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and we will work you into the conversation. Uh, Harry in Sterling Heights. Harry, welcome to Detroit Today. Good morning. Can you hear me? Yep, I can hear you, Harry. Uh, great, uh, great controversial subject. I probably should turn your radio the down. Building and warn, but oh, 1986, and the building that was built, and it was, and it was. Yeah, Harry, you're going to want to turn your radio down. I can. Yeah, it was built in 1939, and uh, 
what the stipulation was when, on the original documents in 1939, and I still got the document here, is that no one could frequent, purchase, rent, lease, or uh, associate with that property unless they're a member of the Caucasian race. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. And, that, I mean, those are the kind of covenants and restrictions so, that you know, exist still exist today, but not as drastic as that back then. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks. Harry, thanks very much for uh, calling with that, that example. Um, uh, Aaron Glantz, what's, what's interesting about that is, you know, that's explicit. That says... Uh, that 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 you're not going to sell or rent to an African American, um, but the the practice now is more subtle. The effect is 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 often the same. Yeah, I mean, you couldn't write a restrictive covenant like that now. It would be illegal, and it's been illegal for 50 years. And yet, in our investigation, we find that the the home ownership gap between blacks and whites is actually larger than it was when segregation was legal. Right. Um, that, and so, and so obviously, even though we passed these laws, um, 50 years ago, they're not achieving the desired result. I mean, here's something else for your listeners to think about in Detroit financial institutions, not just the city of Detroit, but the Detroit area financial institutions are making 13 times as many conventional mortgage loans, to whites as blacks. Wow. Um, there's not 13 times as many white people in the Detroit area. And even though there's a wealth gap in Detroit, um, it's not, it's not like white people in the Detroit area are worth 13 times more than African Americans, um, you know, in terms of how much money they make. So there is, um, there is some real, uh, troubling things that we've identified and what concerns me is that the lending industry doesn't seem to want to address it. You know, they, the American Bankers Association wouldn't give us an interview. The Mortgage Bankers Association wouldn't give us an interview. Uh, I approached about eight uh, lending institutions that are specifically named in our coverage. Uh, none of them would grant me an interview. They all sent like statements that said, oh, we believe in fair lending. We don't discriminate. We deny any allegation of wrongdoing. But, you know, the kind of question that you're asking, which is what's really behind this, they didn't even want to engage in a conversation about how we could end up with this result uh, if indeed uh, they're not breaking the law. Right, right. Uh, again, thanks for the call and the comments there. Let's go to Hooper. Uh, Lives in Cleveland, I believe, Hooper, and is from here in Detroit. Yeah, actually, I'm from a neighborhood in Cleveland, Ohio, called Tremont. I'm okay. here in Detroit on a delivery. I see. Okay. I'm, I want to talk about the revitalization of the city of Cleveland in particular, where we're building hotels and $300,000, $500,000 homes and condominiums, mm -hmm. and 99% of the people that are moving into these new buildings and houses are all white. Uh, the millennial generation, if you will. And what we have is an influx of the Cleveland Clinic buying into the poorer neighborhoods of Cleveland, forcing residents through taxation, overbilling of water, electricity, and heat out of their natural homes. So the institutions and the city of Cleveland working together to rebirth itself is actually discriminating against the people of Cleveland, which are the inner ring suburbs, mm -hmm. uh, forcing them out of their own neighborhoods. So you 
see the same thing going on across the country. And this isn't a direct correlation of the food available in these neighborhoods also. So let's take a, a neighborhood like Huff or Glenville, where it's called a food desert, but you go one mile west to Ohio City, and there's 15 supermarkets within a five-mile area. Wow. Uh, this is the proportional around the country that we look at and say, well, how can this be fair and how can we save our cities and still keep minorities within its structure? It, it's a very slippery slope, and the government has always been on one side making that slope slippery, and the banks are in right in line with them. Even when we look at our arts grants through our send taxes for beer and alcohol, yeah. 99% of that money go to white students or white people in particular for the arts and culture. The concerts that we have have no representation. This weekend, Saturday, we have the Bright Winter Festival. It's a large outdoor winter festival, but this is geared toward all Eastern Europeans. There is no minority representation hmm. in this winter festival. Yeah. So these are the kind of things that we're dealing with in Cleveland. Yeah, no, Hooper, very- I, I appreciate the call and the and the and the information, and I think that raises a really interesting uh, dynamic, which is the sort of private commercial driving of that kind of segregation, which is a little different from. Uh, well, you know, I, I just want to bounce off of this a little bit because this is one of the really important things, actually, that we found in our story. Uh-huh. We see this all over the country, yeah. which is that this law, the Community Reinvestment Act, which you know was signed by Jimmy Carter in mm-hmm. 1977 to deal with the racist legacy of redlining, has kind of been turned on its head in this, um, you know, 21st century uh gentrification era that we live in. And the same thing that the caller was talking about in Cleveland, uh, we saw in our on-the-ground reporting in Philadelphia that the banks were getting most of their Community Reinvestment Act credit by lending to white newcomers in historically black neighborhoods. neighborhoods, So in other words, yeah, so in other words, black people couldn't get loans in black neighborhoods, but white people could. And, and, And then as a result of the fact that banks were lending to white people um, in these black neighborhoods, they were getting a satisfactory outstanding grade under the Community Reinvestment Act and uh, without really helping the people, you know, the residents who were there, who actually the lived there. Yeah. to help. Yeah. Uh, Aaron Glantz, senior reporter with Reveal in the Center for Investigative Reporting. Thanks for being here. Uh, reminder to listeners that Reveal's investigation will air on WDET next Tuesday at 2 p.m and Wednesday at 10 p.m. That's going to do it for me today. I will be back tomorrow. I hope you will, too. This is 1019 WDET, Detroit's public radio station, community service of Wayne State University. We'll see you tomorrow.